Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, it is time for another edition of Felony Friday. This is the weekly podcast that focuses on injustice in the broken criminal justice system. Now, today's show is a follow-up to a prior episode. John Ziegler is my guest today. John was on Felony Friday back on episode eight, where we spent the entire hour-long episode talking about the Jerry Sandusky child sex abuse scandal. I will link to that episode in the show notes for today's show, which can be found at lionsofliberty.com slash FF14. I recommend that anyone listening to this show who has not listened to John's first appearance go back and listen to episode eight first. We are not going to rehash uh, the evidence and all of the interviews that John referenced in the previous time he was on the show. So make sure to go back and listen to that one first if you haven't heard that. Today we'll focus on some questions um, that I received from listeners to the show, and we'll dig a little deeper into some areas of the case that I feel are important. Some quick background on John. He is a nationally syndicated radio host, a documentary filmmaker, and author. He is the co-host of The John and Leah Show, which airs Sunday evenings, um, and it's syndicated nationally. He also runs the website, The Framing of Joe Paterno. And that's where you can find uh, links to all of John's interviews and his research related to the Sandusky scandal. John, welcome back to Felony Friday. John, thanks so much for having me, and thank you for your interest and knowledge of this case. Yeah, it's a very interesting case to me personally. As you know, I went to Penn State, and I'm really just seeking the truth, John. And I really appreciate what you have done, uh, someone who really doesn't have a connection to this case, but has put a ton of time um, really with for no financial gain or anything whatsoever into finding out the truth of this case. So I really do appreciate that. And one thing I wanted to talk about first, um, I know last time uh, back in episode eight, when you were on, we talked a lot about victim number two. That's of course the Mike McQuarrie episode. And you really destroyed uh, the narrative that is rampant in the media on that case. That of course is the case where Mike McQuarrie, um, claims to have seen a uh, Jerry Sandusky raping a boy in the shower and ran away and then went to Joe Paterno. Joe Paterno went to administrators, and apparently that was the grand cover-up. I'm not going to rehash, uh, ask you to rehash the evidence there, but one thing I did particularly want to ask you about is the fact that Jerry Sandusky was naked in the shower with a boy. That alone is pretty strange. Yeah, and I'm glad you asked that. We, we briefly mentioned it the last time. And we didn't get a chance to get back to it because it is definitely an issue for a lot of people that they just can't get past. And, you know, for a long time, I understood that. I thought, okay, well, it's so weird for most people to think, why in the world is someone showering with young boys, apparently on a fairly consistent basis? It's inherently suspicious. And for a lot of people, they just think, Believe it or not, John, I've actually had people who say they don't even care if Sandusky ever sexually molested people. That's bad enough. And I'm thinking, really? Okay, well, first of all, it's important to point out that is not why Joe Paterno got fired and Penn State got brought down because Jerry Sandusky was simply showering with young boys. The reason why that happened was because it was reported in just a matter of a couple of days after a 23-page grand jury presentment was leaked illegally, that Mike McQuarrie had somehow witnessed a rape, an anal rape of a 
10-year-old boy and that either nothing was done or that somehow there was a cover-up of that. That's what facilitated all of this. It's what facilitated the firing Joe Paterno, Graham Spanier, uh, effectively Tim Curley and Gary Schultz, their indictments. And um, obviously it also facilitated the arrest of Cherry Sandusky and I believe uh, his conviction. It's all about McQueary. I mean, McQueary drives all of this. And before I, I get to the my theory on the showering, it's important to point out, especially for those who, who aren't that familiar, just the, the, the bullet points of why the McCreary story doesn't hold water. First of all, he never tells anybody anything about a sex act for 10 years. Uh, when he does tell anyone about uh, a sex act, it's under highly suspicious circumstances where I believe Mike McCreary had a lot of reason to be very willing to give investigators whatever they wanted because he thought they were talking to them because he had been sending naked pictures of himself through a Penn State phone to a woman, not his wife. When he does tell the story, he gets the date, the month, and the year flat wrong, which is something that to me is incomprehensible if he really saw a local legend raping a young boy. He also not only gets it wrong, he thinks that it happens after 9-11 when it actually occurred before 9-11. But more important than anything else, we have an enormous amount of information about the boy who was in the shower, the so-called victim two that you've already referenced. His name is Alan Myers. And if you go back and listen to what we talked about, I spoke in great detail about how it is that Alan Myers on numerous occasions over an extremely long period of time in great detail and with great passion and against great odds against his own self-interest said numerous times that Jerry Sandusky was the greatest thing that ever happened to him and that nothing had ever occurred in the shower or outside of the shower. And he, he knew things that only the boy in the shower could possibly know. All right. So with that, all that said, here's the deal with the shower. First of all, the number one thing people need to understand is this did not happen as often as the prosecution perceived or portrayed that it did. As far as I'm concerned, we only know for sure of two times where Jerry Sandusky uh, ever showered naked with a boy at Penn State. The victim two episode in 2001 and the victim six episode in 1998. In 1998, that episode was fully investigated by a DA that had no love for Penn State whatsoever, Great Ray Greekar. And after a full investigation, it was found to have been not valid. There were no charges filed. And nothing ever came of that situation, nor should have. Because if you listened uh, or read the testimony of that victim number six from 1998 at the Jerry Sandusky trial in 2012, it frankly reads like a statement from a witness for the defense. And this is a person who at that time knew he had a massive financial self-interest in Jerry being convicted and him being part of that conviction. And by the way, Victim number six and his mother, who I think drove a lot of what victim number six did, ended up holding out for the largest settlement of any of the accusers in this case. Well, I don't know the exact amount. It might be close to $10 million for his wow. role in this case that's has been reported in that vein. So we have these two episodes. Now, it's those dates are important, right? Let me tell you why those dates are important, 1998 and 2001. But before I do that, let me give you some background. 
for a normal person, I would agree that showering naked with a boy would be inherently suspicious, especially today. But it didn't happen today. It happened in 1998 and 2001. Jerry Sandusky is someone who grew up in a rec home where nakedness, nudity, was quite common. There was people swam naked. They showered naked. This was part of his experience. He was from a very different generation. In today's generation, obviously, this is seen as taboo, forbidden, and for good reason. Now, why is that? Part of why that's the case is that we had something called the Catholic Church scandal, which brought to everyone's attention the idea of older men, younger teenage boys or adolescent boys uh, in a sex scandal of a very wide breadth. Well, when did that come out, John? When did the Catholic Church scandal heighten everyone's sensitivities towards this? That came to public consumption and perception in the 2002, 2003, 2004 time period. That's after, after Jerry Sandusky uh, showers with a boy in 1998 and in 2001. And in both of those episodes, he's told, hey, Jerry, you might want to knock this off. This is really stupid. Well, by all accounts, by all evidence, all real evidence, not by rumor innuendo or by accusers with, in my view, no credibility, it never does happen again after the 2001, early 2001 episode. It never occurs again after February 9th, 2001, the Victim 2 episode. And to me, I think the Catholic Church scandal really is incredibly important to all of this because what occurred in the Sandusky-Penn State story is that people saw these allegations through the prism of the Catholic Church scandal. But the events had occurred before the Catholic Church scandal changed the rules. And I think when you look at 1998, State College, Pennsylvania, Happy Valley in 1998 might as well have been 1958 as far as the level of the community's naivete and this, you know, this very perfect environment where everyone's happy, you know, the whole Happy Valley thing. This is not a very cynical uh, era. This is a, a place where people trust each other. This is not a situation where in 1998 we had the same rules and the same cynicism that we do today, for better or for worse. And, right. and so so I, I think that, that, unfortunately, it's a complex issue. You need to have a lot of knowledge. You need to have a lot of context. But I really think that the number one thing that allows everyone to misperceive this case is the fact that the events occur before the Catholic Church scandal is known, but they come out afterwards. And I actually urge people to watch the movie Spotlight about the Catholic Church scandal, which won the Academy Award last year. Uh, Graham Spanier, by the way, thought it was the second best movie he saw last year. I've spoken to Graham Spanier about the movie. In fact, he's one of the first people I spoke to after I saw the movie. Because when you see this movie Spotlight, and by the way, they have Joe Paterno make a cameo appearance in a real cheap low blow in a bar scene on a television set. Joe Paterno just happens to show up, which I'm sure was not a coincidence. When you watch the movie Spotlight, 
with the right information and the right context, it proves what an absolute joke the whole Penn State Sandusky scandal is because everything in spotlight is the opposite. It's the opposite of what happens or allegedly happens in the Penn State Sandusky case. I believe that an educated understanding of the Catholic Church scandal shows you the absurdity of what we were told in the Penn State Sandusky scandal. Yeah, the Catholic Church scandal, that, that is an important reference point, and that's something that really no one else is talking about. And so I, I think that is a, an important point. I am glad you brought up the 1998 incident, victim number six, because another aspect of that that a lot of people point to, as you mentioned, that, of course, was investigated by police. No charges were made. But during the course of the investigation, there was uh, audio taken of Jerry Sandusky, I think, talking to victim number six's mother. And the, this isn't a direct quote, but he said something to the effect of that he wishes he could take back showering with her son and that he wished he were dead, something to that effect. A lot of people have viewed that as uh, an admission of guilt. Yeah, I find this fascinating. And, you know, when Dottie Sandusky and I did our interview with Matt Lauer a couple of years ago from her home, Lauer was really hung up on this. And this, and I guess I had just misperceived or underestimated just how much people wanted to cling on to this alleged piece of evidence. And I mean, you know what, John? I, in a way, I think it's almost an indication of how pathetic the case against Sandusky is, that this is what you have to latch on to. Because first of all, and I'm not criticizing you because you're not the only person who's made this mistake. In fact, I've been on the Dr. Drew show on CNN where a fellow analyst claimed to have heard or maybe even said she saw the tape of Jerry Sandusky saying he wishes he was dead. And I said, oh, really? I let her off the hook too easily because there is no tape. I knew there was no tape and there is no tape. You can't find one because it does not exist. If it exists, it's never been released, not in court or anywhere else. No one's ever heard a tape. I don't believe there was a tape. And Jerry and Dottie don't believe that that's what Jerry said. But I don't even care if that's what he said. I wish I were dead. And just to interrupt for a second. So where did that come from then? I believe that that comes from either notes and or testimony from a police officer. And so we don't know. The veracity of that is highly in question. And I know directly from Jerry and Dottie that neither of them believes that that's what Jerry said. But I don't care. I'm willing to say, OK, he said, I wish you were dead, because if you understand the context, it makes sense. First of all, and this sounds flippant, but it's not, you know, the I wish I were dead thing. I say worse about myself on the golf course almost every single time I play golf. So the idea that somehow I wish I was dead is an admission of guilt is, is absurd to me. And by the way, let's do the logic on this admission of guilt. See, I wish people would be consistent. Oh, so you're saying that Jerry Sandusky effectively confessed back in 1998 to the mom of victim number six but all these years later, while he's in prison now and he's been convicted and publicly is deemed to be the worst human on the planet and has no chance of getting out, he's 100% maintaining his innocence. How does that make any sense? It's a good point. How does that make any sense if he's confessing allegedly in 1998? But let's go back to the context. Here's what Jerry thought had happened. Jerry thought thought 
that this young boy, victim number six, had cancer. He was told he had cancer, I believe, by the mother. And Jerry thought that this kid was somebody that he could help and that for whatever reason, they're in the shower, he lifts him up to get the shampoo off of his hair. There's no allegation of a sexual act or contact at all. As I already mentioned, victim number six in his testimony sounds like he's for the defense. He says he never thought of it as being sexually assaulted until other people told him after the fact. And most importantly, John, the relationship that occurs after this alleged episode, and frankly, I am sure that this episode was nothing. In fact, if you go to YouTube, there's an hour-long conversation I have with Jerry Sandusky about this very episode. Almost entire hour just about this from prison where I surreptitiously recorded the whole thing. Jerry doesn't even know for sure he's being recorded, but that was against the rules of the prison. I grill him on every aspect of this. And if you just listen to it, both from a factual standpoint as well as just his attitude, it's very much like if someone had been pulled over for speeding, going you know 50 miles an hour in a 45 mile an hour per hour zone, gotten a warning, and that was it. I mean, that's the level of urgency of this case. And frankly, I think the facts bear that out. So if you look at the relationship afterwards, here's the key moment, to, John, to me, that blows apart the notion that 1998 was anything nefarious. So Jerry retires. Jerry retires, it's important to point out, two football seasons after this. Not the one right after, two seasons later, right? So in the end of the 1999 season, the 98 episode occurs in the spring of 98. We're now in the late fall of 99, the second season that Jerry is coaching. It's his last home game against Michigan. And of course, you know, it's a big game. It's against Michigan. It's Jerry's last home game. He's got no tickets to give out to anybody. And as he's on his way to the game, the mom of victim six flags him down and begs him to get her son into the game with him. And Jerry figures out using one of the ball boys, I believe, or one of the equipment people, a way to get him on the sideline for that game. Now, this is the mom who is the catalyst for this entire episode being seen as nefarious. This is the same mom who thinks that Jerry Sandusky sexually molested her boy or wanted to molest her boy a year earlier in the shower. This is the same boy who for the next decade plus, Jerry Sandusky will treat so much like a son that on Thanksgiving and Father's Day, back in 2010 and 2011, this boy, now man, sends loving text messages to Jerry Sandusky. Happy Father's Day, Jerry. Love you. Great things still to come, which I think is a direct quote. This is many years later. And by the way, the same woman, the mom, who believes somehow that um, Penn State covered this up, and that's what she told Sarah Ganim the day before Joe Paterno got fired. I mean, she is a key person to why Joe Paterno got fired, because she gets quoted anonymously by Sarah Ganim in an article that Tuesday morning that goes everywhere. ESPN obsesses about it. It's almost 
every 10 minutes they're reporting about it on the Tuesday morning where Joe Paterno's press conference ends up getting canceled. And the next night he ends up getting fired. She's the one alleging that Penn State covered up the abuse of her child, right? Well, what the media won't tell you is well after that, she sent not one, but two of her daughters to go to school to where? Penn State. And I have a photo. <laughs> I have a photo of her second daughter graduating from Penn State, the two of them together behind the We Are Penn State sign. It's not like, you know, they weren't big Penn State fans after this. It's absurd. It was a money grab. Let's talk for a minute about, uh, not to get off uh, off course here, but I think pretty much any direction you go from here is important. Let's talk for a minute about uh, Sarah Gannum. For people that don't know, she was a reporter that essentially broke the Sandusky scandal, reporter for the Patriot News, and she won a Publisher Prize in 2012 for her work on the Sandusky scandal. So Sarah Gannum, you're saying that, did, did she contact the mother of victim six to get that information or do you know how that worked? Yeah, well, from what I've been able to gather, it's very clear that she knew. Here's, <laughs> I love that the media narrative about Sarah Gannum is that she's this amazing reporter, right? It's important to point out that she had really, she had graduated from Penn State like two years before. Three months into her job with the Patriot News, she ends up breaking the story of this grand jury as a effectively a, a rookie reporter. You know, so either she's a savant or somebody was handing her information. Well, in the years that have happened since, she hasn't broken anything uh, and has done nothing of note. And frankly, having read a lot of her reporting, which is piss poor in my view, it's very clear that she was handed information either directly by the prosecution or secondhand by the prosecution. And I have some theories as to who it could have been. But the reality is that it's obvious that that's what happened. And it's obvious. I mean, I even remember thinking at the time, wait a minute. So three days after a grand jury, which is supposed to be as secret as they get, right? A grand jury presentment is released. Sarah Ganim has interviews with the moms of both victim one and victim six. How is that possible? Because you wouldn't even, if it was really secret, you wouldn't even know who the hell the victims were and then trying to track down the moms and then get them to talk would be impossible in that short a time frame under that environment. Well, it's very clear now that Sarah Ganim knew all along who victim number one and victim number six were because she had been told and that she had been given information. And why was she given that information? This is incredibly important. The only logical explanation for why she was given this information by either the prosecution or someone friendly to the prosecution, which is effectively the same thing, is that the prosecution knew their case sucked and they needed more accusers. They needed more evidence and they became convinced. They became convinced that their case was real, but that they needed to break the ice. They needed to shatter the cover-up. And if they just got it out into the public, the walls would cave in, people would come out of the woodwork, much like they did with the Catholic Church. Again, I think this is incredibly important. And this is what happened with that movie Spotlight at the end of that movie, that people would come out of the woodwork if they just made it public. So effectively, they used, the prosecution did, they used Sarah Ganim as a Craigslist ad, looking for more accusers. And interestingly, they didn't get much. They really only got one key accuser 
after that Sarah Ganim article in March of 2011, almost exactly five years ago to the day. And that particular accuser is integral to this whole case and I think shows what a scam uh, the entire case against Sandusky was. But Sarah Ganim is a fraud. Sarah Ganim was handed information because the prosecution knew their case was weak. They had had a grand jury for over two years that had gone nowhere, had not issued any indictments, despite the fact that Aaron Fisher, victim number one, had testified twice at that point and was so unimpressive they couldn't get an indictment. They knew about Mike McQuarrie at that point, interestingly, but they still couldn't get an indictment in March of 2000. And 11, when Sarah Ganim makes that article. So Sarah Ganim, like the rest of this case, John, is the exact opposite of how the media portrays her. She is no heroine. She is actually a stooge for the prosecution. And it's very obvious from anybody who looks at this objectively. Another aspect of uh, the media coverage that people have asked me about after her last interview was Jerry's appearance on CBS with Bob Costas. And of course, that's the appearance where, you know, Costas is there with Sandusky's lawyer. Sandusky's on the phone and Bob asked him something to the effect of, are you sexually attracted to underage boys or to young boys? And Sandusky repeats the question back and then he rambles on about liking young boys, liking spending time with them before finally saying after seeming like forever, no, no, I'm not sexually attracted to young boys. How would you defend that response there? Um, A lot of people would criticize this and say, obviously, if he's not attracted to young boys, why wouldn't he just come out and say, of course, I'm not attracted to young boys? Well, this is very interesting because like most people, when Joe Paterno got fired, I presume Jerry must be at least somewhat guilty. And I think that's a a huge fallacy that, that a lot of people, especially in the news media, bought into. And it's important to point out that the Bob Costa interview on NBC occurred after Joe Paterno was fired. So everyone is presuming when they hear the Bob Costas interview that Jerry is guilty because otherwise Joe Paterno would never have been fired. I mean, everything in this case happens in the wrong order, right? I mean, Joe Paterno's firing should have been the last thing that would have occurred if everything was true, not the first thing that occurred. So everything's out of order. And Paterno, I cannot emphasize this enough, Paterno's firing ends any chance for Jerry to get a fair trial because everybody, including the media, logically, understandably presumes, oh, Jerry must be guilty. Now, so that's important for the context of the nature of the Costas interview. When I heard Jerry's answer to, uh, are you sexually attracted to young boys? That's the first time I ever thought maybe he's innocent. And I know that sounds bizarre to some people. It sounds obviously counterintuitive, but it makes sense if you think about it logically. Because what was being alleged here is that Jerry Sandusky was a monster pedophile for decades, right? Well, I'm sorry, a monster pedophile who has been engaging in this behavior for decades could never possibly have gotten away with it as scot-free as Jerry Sandusky had to that point if he was unable to simply answer the question, are you sexually attracted to young boys? A pedophile would have that answer down pat and would be prepared for it and would be ready for it and would answer it 100% every time. However, 
the guy who is caught in a firestorm that he's completely confused by and never even thought of himself as even remotely being a pedophile might go, hmm, that's an odd question. Um, let me think about it. I never thought about that before. Uh, no, I'm not sexually attracted to young boys. And John, when I met Jerry Sandusky and I interviewed him twice in prison and also twice on the phone, I can assure you this is exactly how Jerry Sandusky talks. It drives his wife crazy. It drove me a bit crazy, only having to deal with it for a much shorter period of time. If you ask Jerry what time it is, unless he has two watches on, he's likely to go, well, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it's somewhere around uh, 3.30. I mean, that's just the way he talks. And other people have said exactly the same thing about Jerry. So I totally understood that it was a horrendous answer and that people were going to further believe what they already wanted to believe, which was that Jerry was guilty. But I think a, a reasonable, objective response to that, even without the information I have as to how that's the way that Jerry talks and he's incredibly naive, would lead one to question it. And also, John, it's important to point out the context of the interview itself. And this is something that doesn't get talked about at all. Maybe I'm I don't know if it's been widely reported or not, but I've mentioned it in prior interviews. And that is Jerry didn't know he was going to be interviewed. Here's what happened there. This is important. Joe Amendola is doing an interview with Bob Costas. And what I think occurred was that Joe thought he was making progress with Bob Costas. Because you got to remember, Bob Costas is a smart guy. Bob Costas, to this day, is by far the most open-minded person in the mainstream media about at least the Joe Paterno angle here. Now, publicly, he'll never wade into the Jerry might be innocent pond because that's just too toxic and he has too much to lose. But I've communicated quite a bit with Bob Costas over the last several years. And I believe that Bob Costas is more knowledgeable of this case than anyone. So Joe Amendola, the, Jerry's attorney, thinks he's making headway with Costas. And Costas says to him, well, can we talk to Jerry? And I think Joe decides, maybe in a, you know, in a, to use a football term, almost like a Hail Mary. I think he decides, you know what? Maybe Costas will understand this. Maybe he'll give him a fair hearing. I want to show Costas I've got nothing to be afraid of, that Jerry's got nothing to be afraid of. I'm just going to let him talk to him. But here's the other key. I think Joe and Bob had a miscommunication about what the nature of the agreement was. I think Joe thought Bob was going to talk to Jerry for maybe two or three questions, maybe two or three minutes tops. Well, Bob, being a seasoned journalist, gets Jerry Sadusky on the phone in an impromptu, non-planned interview. Jerry's not shutting up because Jerry's a nice guy and he's super naive. And Bob just keeps going and going and going. So Jerry literally has zero preparation for this. Zero. He's sitting at home. He gets a phone call. Joe says, hey, you want to talk to Bob Costas? And Jerry says, okay, fine. And, you know, the rest is history. So I think the context there, like in all aspects of this case, is important because this was a colossal error by Joe Amendola to do this on the phone without preparation. But I think it was born out of confidence. Think about it logically. If you're Joe Amendola and you have got a guilty client, you don't do that in a million years. 
You only do something like that if you've got an innocent client and it just happened to backfire. Was this also uh, looking at the time frame right after victim two had showed up at Joe Amendola's office? That's a really important point. I'm glad you brought it up because I think that's why Joe got very confident. That is a really important point because you have, if you put yourself in Joe Amendola's mindset, he has the statement from victim two obliterating Mike McQuarrie at that time. He tells Bob Costas he's got the statement from victim two obliterating Mike McQuarrie's story. So I think that's probably one, why Joe was confident. Two, probably why you probably saw Bob's eyes light up like, really? And he probably saw that this was a situation where maybe we can turn this thing around but we got to get it done now. Well, it was, uh, like I said, a Hail Mary that got intercepted. And then, of course, after that interview, victim two flips with the help of state college attorney, not the help, I think the, the manipulation of uh, state college attorney Andrew Shubin and does not testify at trial and later gets paid $3 million by Penn State. But that is an incredibly important point. For the mindset of Joe Amendola and Jerry Sandusky, by the way, when they agree to a couple of minute phone conversation with Bob Costas, which turns into something very different. They were very confident at that moment because they had victim two's statement. But of course, after that, all hell broke loose. Yeah, that's definitely an important thing to keep in mind. Let's move on and talk about Matt Sandusky. For those listening, Matt Sandusky. Uh, was adopted by Dottie and Jerry, uh, came from a very troubled background. And he was actually, I think, on Jerry's side all the way up through the beginning of the trial, even after Jerry was indicted. I think he went to court in order to allow his kids to still see Jerry. And then during the trial, he flipped and went against Jerry. And I think he ended up getting a settlement from Penn State. So what's Matt Sandusky's deal in all this? And why should we not believe Matt Sandusky's story of abuse? Well, I think Matt Sandusky's real story here is incredibly important to understanding what really occurred. And John, in all seriousness, and I've thought about this a lot, I'm not sure that if you gave me a couple of days that I could come up with a set of facts that made it more obvious that someone was lying than the facts that I'm about to give you about Matt Sandusky, all right? Of all the aspects of the case that I am sure of, and I'm in almost 100% range on most of it, I am most positive that Matt Sandusky is lying about being abused by Jerry Sandusky. I would, without hesitation, if it was a yes or no, I would bet my daughter's life that Matt Sandusky is lying. And here's why we know. And I'll just give you some of the highlights. I mean, I could talk for hours about this, but here's how we know. The first thing you mentioned, the adoption. Yes, he was adopted at the age of 18. He was adopted at the age of 18 after begging Jerry and Dottie to adopt him at 18. That's, depending on his ever-shifting timeline, that's four to six years after he was abused by Jerry Sandusky. All right. Now, does that alone prove that he was not abused? No, but I would venture to say that not too many 18-year-olds who have been sexually abused by uh, their adopted parents in a foster situation decide that they beg to be adopted. But, but that's a small part of the overall piece of the puzzle here. 
The other aspect of this is that we have a situation where Matt, when the arrest occurs, when the arrest occurs, Matt Sandusky goes to court to fight his ex-wife for the right for his children to still visit Jerry Sandusky alone. Now, this is after Jerry has already been disgraced, after everything's public. This is, you know, it's not as if he, he's not aware of the allegations or that somehow, you know, Jerry is there's still this beacon of the community who he wants to be on the good side of. This is the disgraced Jerry Sandusky. And Matt fights in court. I have the court records. I've posted them at FramingPaternal.com uh, that show that he fought his ex-wife in court so his kids could see Jerry. Now, before that, Matt Sandusky only testifies one time in this case, and it's not at trial. It's at the grand jury. And at the grand jury, Matt Sandusky testifies unequivocally that Jerry Sandusky never abused him and that the accusers are not to be believed. It was a full-throated, 100% support of Jerry Sandusky. Matt Sandusky was so incensed by what was happening with the investigation, he wanted to hold a press conference, a press conference decrying the entire matter, but his attorney convinced him not to do so. By the way, at one of Jerry's post-arrest um, events, Matt Sandusky is standing behind him in support of Jerry Sandusky. Well, all of this changes, not because, as Matt now claims, he suddenly remembered. <laughs> By the way, he contradicts himself in his numerous interviews. Sometimes he says he didn't remember. Uh, other times he says, like in the documentary film Happy Valley, he says he wanted to stop lying. Well, which is it? Did you suddenly remember you were abused or did you want to stop lying? See, I mean, it, it's one of many massive contradictions that Matt Sandusky has basically created because of all these differing stories and the fact that he's trying to keep his story straight and can't. But his, but one of his stories is that he goes into court on the first day of the trial. By the way, he's sitting with Dottie Sandusky the first day of the trial. He's sitting with Dottie Sandusky, and one of his stories is that in seeing the testimony of victim number four, he realizes, oh my gosh, I was molested. And then he never goes back to the trial again. And in the middle of the trial, he goes to the police and he tells them a very, very benign story of abuse that is vastly different than the current story that he's telling. Well, let me tell you what really happened. Matt Sadusky did not go into the first day of court and suddenly realize, oh my gosh, I was abused by Jerry Sadusky. What he realized was, oh my gosh, Jerry's going down. The fix is in here. Uh, this is the Salem witch trial. And my meal ticket is going with it. And I've got to make a decision. And this might be my last chance to jump ship. And Matt decides to jump ship. And if you watch that Happy Valley interview that I referenced already, he actually says, do I continue lying or do I risk everything and tell the truth. Well, what exactly were you risking, Matt Sandusky, at that moment when you decided to go flip and become an accuser in the middle of the trial? If you were really abused, there's nothing at risk. 
because you're leaving a family that sexually abused you and facilitated your sexual abuse. Uh, and Jerry Sandusky is going down. His name is disgraced. There's nothing more they can do for you. There's no risk. It's only a risk. If you're telling a lie and you're not sure if maybe it's too late to get on the gravy drain and maybe somebody's going to say, wait a minute, your story doesn't make any damn sense. Well, Matt Sandusky correctly read the tea leaves and the wind direction and nobody in the news media has given him any scrutiny at all. When all you have to do and go to YouTube and check out John Ziegler, Matt Sandusky, Oprah Winfrey uh, and look at the clips from the Oprah Winfrey interview that Matt Sandusky did, and Matt Sandusky's answer to the question from Oprah, how do we know you're telling the truth, makes Jerry Sandusky's answer to Bob Costas on Are You Sexually Attracted to the Young Boys seem like something Abraham Lincoln might have said. It is absolutely a joke. He's deer in the headlights. He's proverbially sweating. He's changing the subject every second. He's never answering the question. He's obfuscating. He is toast. It's a, a complete meltdown. Yet, because the media doesn't have any incentive to create that narrative, it was ignored. And finally, I'll just leave you with, Matt has five siblings, adopted siblings. Every single one of them is on the record saying that they are positive that Matt is lying and that Matt is a horrible human being. And one of them has told me that Matt actually tried before he flipped, he tried to get another one of the siblings to flip with him because he wasn't competent enough to do it on his own. And they told him, go pound sand. I'm not going to do this. I wasn't abused and neither were you. Uh, so Matt Sandusky is literally the worst human being in this entire saga. And that's really saying something. You know, he tried to commit suicide, John, when he was a teenager. And he's trying and he's done successfully, in fact, even fooling, a, I think it was a New York Times reporter, that somehow this suicide had something to do with his abuse. Because now, of course, everything in retrospect is Jerry's fault. Well, what he doesn't tell anyone is he didn't try to commit suicide alone. He tried to commit suicide with a girl who was living with the Sandoskis at the time who was not related to him or anyone else. They had taken her in because she was a single mom. And the reality is, because I've spoken to that woman at length, and she was stunned by Matt Sandusky's allegations and even more incensed that he's trying to claim that the suicide had something to do with abuse. The suicide attempt had nothing to do with abuse. It had to do with the fact that they were in a Romeo and Juliet love situation, and they felt as if somehow, uh, you know, this was their lives had ended and they might as well end it together. And they tried and they failed to commit suicide. I don't know how committed they were, but this was a romance situation. This was not an I'm abused by Jerry Sandusky, so I'm going to kill myself circumstance. I know of nobody, nobody who knows Matt Sandusky who has anything good to say about him. And that's not just people from the Sandusky family. Uh, that's people who have employed him, people who have known him. He is a bad, bad person. And his therapist at the time of the suicide actually told Jerry and Dottie that he has no conscience, no conscience. So he's a sociopath, which is what you'd have to be to spread the lies that Matt Sandusky is currently doing and getting away with because of media incompetence in this country. Yeah, I watched the uh, his interview with Oprah Winfrey today 
And yeah, it's pretty hard to believe his story after watching how he answers Oprah's questions. I will link to that interview in the show notes. And I definitely highly recommend that everyone watch that as well and make your own opinion on Matt Sandusky. I wanted to talk about Scott Paterno next. Scott Paterno's role in this whole thing. I watched a video on your website, it's on YouTube, titled Inside Scott Paterno's Role in the Fiasco and His New Revelations. In this video, you talked about a lot of the upside-down logic in this case, where you would think someone like a Scott Paterno would question Mike McQuarrie and Mike McQuarrie's story, but in the beginning, he supported McQuarrie before later flipping on him. And one of the things that really stood out to me, you talked about how Scott Paterno was angry with you for interviewing Jerry Sandusky in jail. Can you talk about and answer maybe why Scott Paterno would be upset with you for doing that? Well, thank you for asking about Scott Paterno, because for people who don't understand the intricacies of this case, and that's the vast majority of people, and especially in the media, they can never get over how or why it is that Scott Paterno, Joe Paterno's a attorney and advisor, PR advisor, and his son on all of this is positive, at least in his public pronouncements, that Jerry Sandusky is guilty, right? Because in in their logic, well, if Jerry's innocent, that's good for Joe Paterno. And if it was true, then Scott Paterno would certainly be at least allowing that to be questioned, if not championing that idea, right? Because it's in his self-interest, right? You would think so, yeah. Right. You would think that except that's not true. It's not remotely true. And Scott Paterno is the person who I think is most integral to understanding the inner workings of what really occurred here and why everything went down the wrong path. And frankly, you know, one of the many, I've made a lot of mistakes in the last four and a half years pursuing the truth in this case. The biggest mistake I made was giving Scott Paterno too much credibility and not understanding where Scott Paterno was really coming from. Because Scott is literally, John, the only person, the only person I have spoken to close to this case who believes that Jerry Sandusky is guilty. He's the only one, the only one. Now, why is he the only one and how is the the only one that's the key to understanding how this all happened. And it's it's a little bit involved, but I'll try to give you the quick story because it's really important, all right? Here's what happens with Scott Paterno. Scott Paterno did not know Jerry Sandusky at all, which is really important. Obviously, Joe and Jay Paterno knew Jerry Sandusky very well. Jay Paterno, I believe to this day, knows Jerry Sandusky is innocent, but cannot say it publicly because it's so toxic and because it's not the family policy. But Jay knew what a goofball Jerry was, and Joe knew that as well. And if you read Jay's book, I think it's pretty clear Joe didn't think for sure that Jerry Sandusky was guilty, even well after all this happened and on his deathbed. I think that's why Joe says, I just want to know what the truth was. Why would Joe Paterno say that if he was somehow sure that Jerry was guilty. Uh, That to me is the statement of a man who, who does not believe that Jerry was guilty. But Scott didn't know Jerry. So in the fall of 2010, David Jones, the Penn State newspaper reporter, beat reporter, 
has a beer or some sort of meeting with, with Scott Paterno. And he effectively, and I'm paraphrasing here, we know this from tweets now from Scott Paterno and piecing together other pieces of information that were reported from Jones and other Patriot News reporters at the time. We've been able to piece together that Jones tells Scott that Jerry's being investigated for child sex abuse, that he's a pedophile, and that David Jones believes that Joe knew and that he's going to bring down the whole program, something to that effect. I mean, and Scott's like, what the hell is going on? What is this about? Now, David Jones, it's important to point out, is someone who is anti-paterno. And if you remember the Rashard Casey case, the quarterback for Penn State, who right just before the Mike McQuarrie episode, oddly enough, got involved in a situation with a police officer where he was charged with assaulting a police officer. Well, it turned out to be total garbage. And Casey got paid seven figures in a settlement. David Jones bought in to the Richard Casey story 100% and never apologized and even basically claimed that there was a cover-up involving that. So that was the context, the history. That was the case where Paterno stood behind Richard Casey, right? And And I think the Richard Casey case really sets the whole Sandusky case up. It happens a year before the McQuarrie situation occurs. And I think that that stays with Joe Paterno forever. I mean, he stood by Casey and he was right. And the authorities were wrong. And Casey, as I said, ends up getting paid a settlement. Anyway, I don't want to get too, it is a long story. So let me try to give you the bullet points. So Jones says this in the fall of 2010 to Scott Paterno. Now, I'm trying to be very charitable to Scott Paterno. I think I've been very fair to him, even though I've been very critical. This has an enormous impact on Scott Paterno's perception, right? Because he's being told by someone who is supposedly in the know, Penn State's beat reporter, that Jerry Sandusky is being investigated and blah, 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 blah. Well, a couple months later, Joe Paterno gets subpoenaed to testify in a grand jury involving Jerry Sandusky sex abuse allegations. In Scott's mind, right, and the way Scott's mind works, and I know Scott pretty well as an adversary, in his mind, he's thinking, holy crap. This has got to be all true. I got told by David Jones this was going to happen. Now, interestingly, Scott, and I've told Scott this, and he's too much of a coward to admit that I'm right. Scott and Jones, after the story breaks and all hell breaks loose, they both misperceive what Jones knew about. They think Jones knew about the McQuarrie episode. He didn't. Jones heard a second or third hand story about the 1998 episode, which is totally different as we've already gone through and have nothing. I mean, there's no guilt anywhere that anyone can remotely prove on Penn State or Jerry Sandusky or Joe Paterno in 1998. But the re- here's how we know that. We know that because Jones, who had a bad relationship with Spanier because of the Richard Casey situation, has a co-worker send Graham Spanier an email. I've spoken to Spanier about this. And the email, the information in the email, is only consistent with the 1998 allegation. It is inconsistent with the Mike McQuarrie allegation. And interestingly, this is the first time Spanier can recall anyone ever saying to him that Jerry Sandusky might have acted inappropriately with young boys 
in a criminal fashion. And that was this was in late 2010. This is before Spanier gets subpoenaed to testify to the grand jury. Interestingly, Spanier returns the email saying, this is the first I've ever heard of it. Can you give me some more information? They don't, the Patriot News doesn't return the email. So they clearly didn't have very much if they don't even return a damn email when the president of Penn State responds to this allegation. What do you know about a sex abuse claim against Jerry Sandusky while he was working at Penn State? And so it's very obvious to both me and Spanier that Jones had bad information. To this day, Jones thinks he knew about McQuarrie. He didn't. He knew about 1998. And so why is this important? So it goes to Scott Paterno's mindset. So when Joe Paterno goes into that grand jury, Scott is already presuming that Jerry's guilty. You got to remember, Paterno's a Republican. Scott Paterno is a Republican lobbyist. This is really a significant fact. He's, what does it mean that he's a Republican lobbyist? Well, what happens in November of 2010 Tom Corbett is elected as the Republican governor of Pennsylvania. So we've got a Republican administration. Corbett was the Republican AG that started this investigation. These are Scott Paterno's people, people to whom he is beholden. His entire career is beholden to Republicans in Harrisburg. He's not going to do anything to buck this investigation or to mistrust it. He's going to believe it. Plus, it's the Republican mentality, as I'm one of them, that everybody's guilty. The prosecution's always right. So as Joe's lawyer, he's prepping Joe under a presumption that there's something to this. And so as Scott starts to get bits and pieces of information, he starts to think, holy crap, this whole thing is real. So when we finally get the next November to Jerry's arrest and the grand jury presentment comes out and it's horrific and the whole McQuarrie rape thing occurs is in the allegations. Scott thinks, oh my God, Joe's getting fired. This whole thing is real. Jerry's a pedophile. And what does Scott do? Scott goes out on the night of November 8th on the front lawn of Joe Paterno's house and effectively declares Jerry Sandusky guilty on national television, saying that he wanted to have a prayer for the victims, and that no matter what else happened, that a lot of young boys had been damaged. And he makes a big show of this. Well, that's game... By the way, Scott was too stupid to understand that this actually made it far easier to fire Joe Paterno the next day. Because in order to fire Joe Paterno, the first thing the Board of Trustees needs to know is that Jerry is guilty. Because if you fire Joe Paterno and Jerry's innocent, then they're the biggest idiots in the history of mankind. Well, Scott alleviates any issue with that because he declares, here we have effectively the voice of Joe Paterno, who has not spoken since the scandal broke since Jerry's arrest because they canceled his press conference. You have effectively the voice of Joe Paterno declaring Jerry Sandusky guilty on the front lawn of Joe Paterno's house. That is devastating. And it's, I believe, a large part of the reason why Joe gets fired the next day. Why is this all significant? It's significant because now Scott Paterno is fully 100% invested in Jerry Sandusky's guilt. Because if Jerry Sandusky is not guilty, 
all of this is Scott Paterno's fault. He not only convicted an innocent man, he allowed a scandal that should have been an, a big nothing burger to destroy his dad's legacy and maybe even kill him. So Scott has an enormous, enormous amount on the line here for Jerry to be guilty. And that's why, in my estimation, Scott has cut off any discussion of Jerry's innocence. And when he calls me, the phone call that I have of Scott Paterno calling me after I interviewed Jerry Sandusky might be the most important piece of evidence that I personally have had in the shaping of my opinion on this case, John, because I still wasn't sure that Jerry was innocent at all. When I, In fact, I was pretty sure he was guilty when I interviewed him the first time in prison. But Scott's reaction was so over the top, so vitriolic, so profanity-laced, so emotional, so lacking in any substance, so lacking in any rationality, that in retrospect now, I am positive the reason Scott reacted that way to me without asking any, you would think, John, that if your father had had his life destroyed in this episode and the first time that the guy who caused it all had been asked serious questions uh, in a way that was intended to exonerate Joe Paterno, that was my whole purpose for interviewing Jerry Sandusky. You think he'll want to know what he said. Right. You would want to know what he said. Exactly. Thank you. Scott didn't, literally did not want to hear one word, not one word, didn't ask one question. In fact, the only question he asked me about the entire interview was, is it true that Jerry doesn't like my dad? And I thought that was really odd. I think it was, I'm, I'm still not 100% sure why he asked me that question. But, it, you know, that whole issue of, I said after I interviewed Jerry, that I was stunned at how much disdain Jerry had for Joe Paterno. Because again, I'm presuming Jerry is guilty, right? And if you're, so if Jerry's guilty, he causes Joe's downfall and maybe his death. And I'm thinking, my God, what kind of a monster would you have to be to not at least have at least a little bit of guilt over what you did to Joe Paterno? And then I realized, wait a minute, it makes a hell of a lot more sense if Jerry is innocent then he would have some disdain for Joe Paterno, partially because of what Scott did, but also because Joe's own testimony, which I think was a misrecollection that was planted in Joe's brain by the attorney general's office and maybe Scott Paterno himself, helped facilitate him going to jail, to going to prison, being disgraced right, for the because, rest of because his life. Because Scott Paterno would have had his meeting with David Jones prior to Joe testifying to the grand jury, right? That is correct. And it is very clear to me that, and by the way, there's so many different things I want to say here, but go read Jay Paterno's book. I think it's page, it's off the top of my head, it's, I think it's page 344, it's something in that range. Jay Paterno, I believe, leads a breadcrumb in the book to show you that Scott doesn't care about the truth in this case. Because Jay Paterno tells a story needlessly. There's no need to tell this story. He tells a story of how he went on and did some media interviews. And he said something that contradicted both the prosecution of Jerry as well as one of the accusers. Because Jay knew that the allegation had not occurred. 
And it was one of these ridiculous things that had been accused of where the program somehow was facilitating Jerry's actions. And Scott, Jay says that Scott calls him up and says, look, uh, you did a good job, but we can't be doing anything to uh, contradict the accusers. I'm paraphrasing here. We can't do anything to contradict the accusers. We can't be seen as doing anything that facilitates, you know, Jerry's side of this. And I thought that was very telling that, and, and, and Jay's response, by the way, in the book to Scott is, but Scott, it's the truth. I think that's actually a direct quote in the book. And so my point of this is that Jay is leaving a breadcrumb in there that Scott's motivations here are about public relations. And the public relations are twofold. They're one, because Scott, and I'll give him some, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I think Scott has made a political, because he's a political guy, he's made a political determination that the only way out of this in the long run is to play along with the media's game and beg for forgiveness and some sort of, you know, absolution or however you want to look at this. And that in the long run, Joe Paterno will be forgiven, you know, if the Paterno family plays nice. That's number one. But number two for Scott Paterno is he is personally invested in Jerry Sandusky's guilt. You have to remember, Scott Paterno is a loser. Scott Paterno has never done anything on his own. He ran for Congress back when the paternal name was gold and he got crushed in a Republican congressional primary. He is a nobody. This is his entire claim to fame. And the family, within the family, John, at the time of the scandal, Scott was the hero, bizarrely enough, because Scott was the one sounding the alarm bells that Joe's in trouble. Scott was the one that was right that when he said Joe's going to get fired. Scott was the one that was right when he said you know, we got to really get out in front of this Jerry situation. It's really bad. Well, he wasn't right. He was wrong. And his actions actually facilitated all of this. It facilitated Joe Paterno's firing. It facilitated Jerry Sinusky not getting a fair trial. And it facilitated cementing in stone the public misperception and the misperception of the news media that somehow there was a cover-up at Penn State and that Jerry Sandusky was a monster. When Scott Paterno accepted that Jerry Sandusky is a monster narrative for which there's zero evidence or logic, when he accepted that narrative in order to play nice with the media, it was over for Joe Paterno in the long run among public perception. Now, he may eventually, and I think he already has, restored his perception among Penn Staters, But Penn Staters have a different incentive here. They have a different level of knowledge. They're obviously much closer to the story. But I'm talking nationally. Joe Paterno's name will never, ever, ever, ever be restored unless somehow Jerry Sandusky is exonerated. And Scott Paterno has made that nearly impossible because, understandably, specifically members of the news media, will never, ever get past how or why Scott Paterno wouldn't be screaming for Jerry Sandusky's innocence if that was the case. And I've just explained to you why that is. That's really amazing, John. And we shouldn't be surprised that a lobbyist like Scott Paterno would be lying for his own personal game, even not having the foresight to see that it's damaging his own family name. You know, I don't, just to be clear, John, I'm not 100% sure if Scott's what his real beliefs are. You know, I've thought a lot about this. 
you know, the anger that he has shown to me is very irrational. I mean, he is off the charts, uh, not just in that phone call to me, but I mean, tweeting, he hasn't done it recently, but I mean, he, even just a few months ago, he was still tweeting very nasty things at me, calling me a loon, uh, mocking me, never accepting my, I mean, I've offered him $10,000 to his charity of choice to debate me about this. He won't do it. He never talks about the facts. He never talks about substance. You know, I think it's quite possible that at the very least, at the very least, deep down, I think Scott has suspicions that I'm right. And I think that drives him crazy. That's the most logical scenario here. Otherwise, if he really thought I was a loon, John, he would have forgotten about me a long time ago. You would think so. Yeah. Instead, he's actually tweeted lies about me on the anniversary of his dad's death. Now, if you want to talk about being inside someone's head, I'm inside Scott Paterno's head about as, as much as anyone can get. And it's probably because deep down he knows I'm probably right. Well, John, we've done a, another hour on this again. So that's two hours total. Thank you for being so generous with your time. We covered an insane amount of material. I will uh, try to link to everything in the show notes. And uh, thank you again for uh trying to seek the truth here and for the incredible amount of research and time that you've put into uncovering the truth. Well, John, I really appreciate you actually being open-minded enough to, you know, ask objective and good questions on subject matters that are important in a way where people can decide for themselves. But I can assure you, this is not a suspicion I have. I want to make that clear. This is not a, boy, it was unfair. It was reasonable doubt. It was, un, you know, due process failed. It was a Salem witch trial for a guilty man type of situation. All those things are important, but they wouldn't drive me to devote my entire life, basically, and destroy my career uh, to try to get to the truth of this matter, especially for people I don't even really like. I mean, I, I clearly, I hate Scott Paterno. I lost a lot of respect for the Paterno family for the way they've handled this. I battle with Jerry and Dottie Sandusky all the time. I have very extreme disagreements with them and their current attorney. You know, I'm not a really big fan of Jerry Sandusky. I think he's a, a naive guy who can be really stupid at times, who probably had the best of intentions and got into a perfect storm that he never understood. And to this day, I don't think he fully understands the perfect storm that he faced. So I, I just hope people understand that I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't an issue of total innocence. And I wouldn't be doing this if I wasn't positive I'm right. And I think anyone that looks at the facts objectively will realize that I am right. Well, thank you again for your time, John. Have a great day. You too, John. Be sure to subscribe and rate the Lions of Liberty podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Now, there has never been a more important time to subscribe to the Lions of Liberty podcast, because if you subscribe right now, then you will be guaranteed to get the next episode of the Lions of Liberty podcast in your feed. And this Monday's episode is not just any episode because the guest on this Monday's show is none other than the good doctor himself, Dr. Ron Paul. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, Mark Clare will be interviewing Ron Paul this Monday, 4-11, on the Lions of Liberty podcast. And hey, guys, be sure to check out the show notes for today's show, where I will link to FramingPaterno.com, that's John Ziegler's website, and everything else that John cited during the course of today's interview. You can find the show notes for today's show at LionsOfLiberty.com slash FF14. 
Now, guys, as I said after my first interview with John Ziegler, I don't take this topic lightly. Child rape is horrifying. But we can't allow the emotion of the crime to stop our search for the truth. And if Jerry Sandusky did one one hundredth of what he was convicted, then he deserves to rot in jail. Now, I understand that 99% of the public long ago put this case to rest and believes that there is zero doubt that Jerry Sandusky is guilty and there is zero doubt that Joe Paterno covered up for his crimes. Despite the fact that there is no evidence to support the latter, there's no evidence to support a Joe Paterno, Penn State administrator cover-up. But after talking with John Ziegler for more than two hours about this case, I'm starting to doubt that there was even anything to cover up. Now, before I really started purposefully researching this case, and prior to speaking with John Ziegler about this case, I was 100% sure of Jerry Sandusky's guilt. There was not a doubt in my mind. But now, after interviewing John Ziegler for more than two hours, spread over two episodes, I think it's possible that Jerry Sandusky is indeed innocent. As crazy as that sounds, to say it out loud, I think it's possible. I'm not ready to proclaim his innocence because I don't know that he's innocent. But if you listen and read the incredible amount of content that John Ziegler has put together, then you would have to be dead to not begin to question some of the convictions against Jerry Sandusky. I encourage everyone to check out John Ziegler's work and to come to their own conclusions after looking at it intensely and purposefully themselves. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have any questions, be sure to email the show, Friday at lionsofliberty.com. Be sure to follow the Lions of Liberty on Facebook and Twitter, and you can join our private Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum. Simply search Lions of Liberty Forum on Facebook. The group will pop up, and we will let you right on in as long as you're not some crazy-looking person in your profile pic. We'll probably approve you right away. Thank you, everyone, for listening again today, guys. I really do appreciate it. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.